Wow, 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 wow. That's funny. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mont and radio host Emily Reese. That's me. Today, we're going to talk about firsts, firsts in classical music, and I'm going to talk about a leaded, lengthy first. So I only have one first. Oh, okay. Awesome. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Joe Mott. Hello, Malaris. How's it going? Thanks for asking. I'm great. How are you today? <laughs> Very good, thanks. Firsts. Firsts. My topic's kind of a, a strange first, but I think listeners, especially listeners that um, once in a while drink older wine, will appreciate the story, um, or that has, that cellar wine. And those that don't will have a little little tip from the trade. Nice. What do you What do you got up your sleeve? I've got a couple of uh, examples of the first time a piece of classical music ended with a fade out of okay. sorts. Uh, there's two really wonderful examples uh, of that. And then uh, we're going to talk about an instrument that did not get its very first concerto until uh, the 1950s. <laughs> All right, the tuba. <laughs> and it's, it's such an amazing piece of music. I'm so excited. So, I'm, I'm yeah. so excited that you're going to do it because you and I have talked about tuba and its use in jazz. Oh, yeah, there's some great jazz tuba for sure. That we've, yeah, I've loved yeah. listening to. And so this is, yeah, this is just like, yeah. Right right on par mm-hmm. with with it just makes me smile. Yeah. Yesterday I was uh, doing a Zoom chat with some friends from Milwaukee and I was like, "Hey, have you heard of this composer?" They're like, "Yep." And I was like, "Have you heard their tuba concerto?" And they're like, <laughs> "Why no?" It's like you want to get a smile on your face pretty quickly during these times. Yeah. Tuba good, concerto. It's a goodie. Concerto for tuba. Yeah. Well, should we start with music or wine? Um, let's start with wine. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think um, I'd love to talk about the producer later. Okay. But I, I want to breach the topic of my election for first yeah. on, you know, nowadays when we drink wine, I think it's like 90 plus percent of wine is consumed in, within like a week of it being purchased. There's some wow, sort of yeah. statistic out there, right? That's probably true in, in my household. <laughs> What do you mean? In your household, it's probably like consumed within the first like 24 hours. Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, but I think, and that's a very, that's very common the world over. Um, And there was a time where, you know, wine was either peasant, like peasant farmer juice, regional, even made at home if you were a farmer, or if it was of some sort of regal nature, it required cellaring. And even now, you know, there there are quite a few wines where, you know, we think of Bordeaux, for example, and people are like, you got to sell that for till 2075. I'm like, well, I think the wine's going to be dead by then, but whatever. You know, people still think like some of these wines need to be cellared. And so I want to talk about a producer who was the first producer I have ever come across that back then and now they make wines that are very regal in style that have what we would consider cellar-like qualities, so they've acquired a, a bouquet as opposed to aromatics. So aromatics, when you think of primary aromatics in wine, you think of fresh fruit, fresh red raspberry, lilacs, all the things. 
But then if you talk about bouquet, you're talking about leather, you're talking about dried fruit, you're talking about sometimes undergrowth and aged qualities, like tertiary qualities of wine, right? And so when you're going through your sommelier exams, you have to be very specific on, is this a primary fruit characteristic? Is this a young wine? Or are we smelling like a tertiary bouquet-like elements. And hmm. I I, it, I think it's kind of, pardon the expression, but kind of douchey to talk about wine like that, so I don't <laughs> necessarily, but it's good to know primary versus tertiary slash bouquet. Mm-hmm. So this producer was the first to present a wine to you as a consumer that you could buy, and that wine would taste like it had been aged already because the producer had aged it for you, knowing that not everybody has access to you know, however much money for a Bordeaux, cellar space, perfect temperature, you know, no light, all the all of those qualities that a good seller has to have. And so um, they were one of the first to make wine that tasted regal, that is regal, very noble fashion, but that's ready to be consumed upon release. And I'll talk about how the wine gets that way and how the cellar came to be and all of that. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can keep going or we can just kind of nibble into some Nibble into some music. What do you want to do? Well, let's music then. All right. Yeah. Love it. So first, uh, we'll talk about uh, uh, these two fade examples. We'll save the tuba for last because, I mean, it's so delightful. <laughs> um, and the first fade out we'll talk about happens in the classical era from a composer named Joseph Haydn. And Haydn lived from 1732 to 1809. And for much of Haydn's life... He worked for a noble family in Austro-Hungary. They were Hungarian. They were the Esterházies. And the Esterházy family had palaces and estates. And in uh, 1772, Prince Nicholas Esterházy had his own orchestra. This is how Haydn worked. Uh, he, Haydn had an entire orchestra at his fingertips and... Um, upwards of maybe 30 or 40 musicians by the time Haydn didn't work there anymore. But the prince was keeping them at this estate uh, for longer than they wanted to be kept. They they were away from their families. The orchestra musicians were were not, you know, they were out of town. They were at this summer estate for the Esterhazy family known as, I think, like the Hungarian Versailles or something like that. And the the musicians just really wanted to go home and they just kept staying and staying and staying, and they missed their families. And so they asked Haydn to ask the prince if they could go home. And Haydn, instead of making a direct plea, wrote a symphony that uh, basically gave the message, it's time to go home now. And so what happens in the final movement, there are four movements in this symphony. It's known as the Farewell Symphony. It's Symphony Number 45, uh, he Haydn has the musicians leave stage one by one, basically. They'll put out their little candles, which they were using to see back in the day. Uh, they would extinguish their, their, their light and walk off stage until the only two people were, that were left were Haydn and the concertmaster, the first violinist. And it's just a really beautiful ending to uh, uh, this, this final movement of this symphony. So... Let's just hear how that plays out. So it's like a it's like a fade out by omission, like you know, yeah. <laughs> like and removing. also it's, and also seems like very purposeful. You know, it was done with. Now we listen to how much music has a fade out because it's just yeah. what happens. Yeah, a, you yeah. Know? 
But when you're, you know, live musician on stage, that's, that can be a really hard technique. I mean, it's really not, but it just wasn't the way pieces ended. That's just not how you, we've all heard symphonies that just and dun 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 da dun da dun 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 for like five minutes and then finally it's like bah, bah, bah. And you're like thank you for ending and this was just the so the opposite of that it's this gentle little three it's in three eight which is also a strange way to end a symphony in that era and so it was just really cool so here we go before we listen to the end of the Haydn, let's listen to the beginning of the movement so that you can hear how many players are active at the beginning of the movement. So it does this stormy opening part for a while, and then it goes into this sweet little ditty that everyone loves, and it's the part where everybody slowly stops playing and leaves the stage. It takes a while. People start to go. This goes on for a couple minutes. I love it. That musician's like, bye. Yep. <laughs> like, see ya. <sighs> those candles and out. <laughs> Blow out those candles. And they went home the next day. Oh, that's so cool. You told me, too, this was supposedly the only piece that was written in the 18th century that was an F sharp minor. minor yeah. Something like that. The only piece in the... Now, that was what Wikipedia said. Or the said. only, the only not, symphony, right? The only symphony yeah, that was written. Yeah. The only symphony written in F sharp minor in the 18th well, not the 1800, in the 18th century, pardon yeah. me. Uh, and that's strange. And Haydn actually had to order special parts for the horn players. We didn't hear horns in that particular part, but mm -hmm. uh, because at the time, horns didn't have valves, right? So what they would do to change key is they would put in different slides. Mm -hmm. And so they had to order special slides to be able to play this piece, which makes me wonder how much time passed between the point where the musicians approached Haydn to say, hey, can you help us get out of here? We want to go home, <laughs> to the point where Haydn writes a symphony, orders the cro special crooks, special slides for the horns, yeah. gets that stuff, they practice, and then they perform, like, I don't know if that was, like, a week of amount of time or if that took, like, three months. I mean, I'm just like... He's like, I'll work on it, guys. Yeah, Give know. me a quarter of a year or <laughs> something. Know. I'm sure it wasn't that long, but the the fact that he had to order special 
Well, maybe he, and maybe he, maybe he already had ordered the parts, you know, thinking I, I really want to write a piece in F sharp minor, and they were on their way, well, and then, and then everybody yeah. starts complaining. And I think and, it was the other way around. Okay, and I think that's how they date the symphony is because he ordered that for the performance of the symphony. Oh, yeah. okay. Because the that's the other cool thing about the Esterhazy family is that they were like wicked good record keepers. And so that's cool. Yeah, that's how they know that's, what he ordered and stuff. That's not uncommon too when we talk about Hungarian Tokai, which is a very famous dessert wine. Oh, neat. Um, there's a lot of records that go back hundreds and hundreds of years neat. about specific vineyards that still exist today and how many putunjos of cool. like this thick paste, sweet paste of grapes that you added to like wow. make something sweeter. Um, Show so, idea. Show yep. idea. Yep. We have lots of them that come your way every week. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's drink some wine. Let's drink wine. So I wanted to talk a little bit about just to go back to the idea of Bordeaux because Bordeaux is, t- in my mind, at a, a bit at the genesis of like why this wine was formed. And I not necessarily. There were other factors, of course, but... Bordeaux was classified in 1855, and I'm not going to go into necessarily why, but the Medoc and Grave, or Graves, two different kind of subregions within Bordeaux, were separated into five different growths, first growth through fifth growth, and there were like however many chateaus in each one. And that was based off of, you know, flavor profile and also money and sales and allocations, right? So obviously what wines sold for more money got first growth status, you know, a little less money, second growth status, and, and on and on. And and it was done by, also, it was done by brokers, and it was done by people that were selling wine, a lot of the people that had a say. So it was sort of like, well, mm. who's making this classification, you know? Yeah. Anyway, but it has been, most people would argue that a lot of it is dated, other people that drink a lot of Bordeaux say, listen, Chateau Latour is one of the best wines in the world. It's just still some of the most expensive wine in the world. Sauternes and Barsac for sweet wines, they were also classified at this time, two different subregions um, within, within Bordeaux. So all of this is to preface the fact that when these wines were sold, even back in the 1850s, people were cellaring these wines for five years, 10 years, 40 years. They weren't cracking open their first growth Bordeaux right away. So as I say that, I will pour, hand me, hand yep. me glasses. We have an 1860s, so how do we get from Bordeaux to Spanish wine and yeah. this wine specifically? And you haven't even said what it is yet. I haven't, no, and I'll, I'll say it right now because I will need to. Uh, the name of the gentleman who founded this bodega is is in comes into the story right now. So in the 1860s, a gentleman by the name of Rafael Lopez Heredia is working in France. He's learning the wine trade there. He's learning the cereal and grain trade there, mostly to ship, you know, from Spain to France because there's a dearth of a lot of different agricultural products, especially grapes are just starting to affect, you know, making wine, the lack of grapes available because of the phylloxera louse that we've talked about that like injects its saliva and ends up, you know, killing very slowly killing vines that ends up happening right around this time. And so he is in charge of finding the right substitutes in Spain to ship to France. 
And the company was poorly managed throughout a couple decades. And this young 20-something, Rafael, he decided to prove himself. You know, he was a very hard worker at that that former company. And so he returns to Spain. He was, you know, there are documents. I'll show you the, this book afterwards. It's a great book on the history of Lopez Heredia. But the company's registrars and just all the letters from Rafael, it's incredible how hard of a worker he was, but also they were just so excited to have him back in Spain. He had been exiled. He had been in France for a long time. He was part of the Carlist Wars, and that's a whole other story. But he was in charge of, at this new company, they hired him to manage grape harvests and to manage the homogenization of wine in Spain, Mm. which was richer. It's warmer than France at at the time. And this area, specifically in Rioja, he was finding out how to homogenize the right wines to then ship them and manage the grape harvest to ship, you know, because at this point, France had just such a lack of wine that people were buying Mm -hmm. a lot of Spanish wine to make Mm -hmm. up for it. And at the time, um, it's also France, this area within Spain, it's in Rioja, so we're in north-central Spain, we're very close to Bilbao, which is a port, and Aro, the center of Rioja production, cellaring, distribution is very close to Bilbao. So it was it was a very fortuitous place to be able to manage the shipping of in mass of wines from Spain uh, to France. And so okay. I guess let's leave it there. Okay. Let's taste the wine. So when you look at the color, what do you think? Like kind of and, and remember just like when we had the Pinot Noir and it was really light and you know, yeah, this you, is super dark. And you had used like the word, the term brickish, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because so, it was orangey. So now check this out within the light over there, close to some white. And this is like blood. This is like a pint of blood. Do you notice how when you hold it next to that white pad of paper over there, how much more brickish it is than the last one that we tasted, the Pinot Noir? Like it's darker, the hue, it's more saturated, but it yeah. looks like... Wines, as they age, red wines, they get more brickish and kind of that tawny-like color. And so this is like a perfect example of how an aged wine looks. This is, we're drinking uh, Lopez Heredia, their 2007, which is a current release. I'll talk about how the wine is made later. But this is their 2007 Viña Bosconia um, Reserva. So now we're drinking a, a 13-year-old wine. Amazing. Um, it does have kind of that tawny verging, like moving towards a tawny color. What about the nose? It smells almost sugary in a weird way. What does sugar smell like? It smells like cake frosting. There you go. Okay. I could see that. I th- When I smell this, I always get like dried red fruits, like dried cherries. I get leather. There's always this element of like freshly tanned leather, like canvas, like canvas shoes almost. You know, there's... Always an element of yeah. undergrowth here. It doesn't smell fresh. Like yeah. I don't smell something like, oh, a bowl of f- fresh, brambly, fun right. fruit. It's right. like, yeah. and that's what they're going for. They're, they've done all the aging in their cellar. So when you taste this, you know, if this were a Burgundy at 2007, you'd be paying three figures for it. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, right around the mid to high 30s for a wine that's 13 years old, which is really it's something amazing. spectacular. What about yeah. the palate? Mm. Has a little bit of acid. I'm surprised. Ooh, yeah, yeah. It's for me. It's got quite a bit. 
obviously first sip of the day is always a bad, for me, a bad judge. Um, but to me, it tastes like definitely medium acidity, like it's, but almost kind of starting to verge towards medium plus. But it tastes like kind of bloody irony. Mm-hmm. Like there's something irony about it. Definitely. And that's how th- this wine always is. Okay. Like old wet oak, old mm-hmm. wet forest kind of smell and taste. Yeah. It's safe to say that if you ask Spanish wine experts who are the top three to five Spanish producers of all time, Lopathidity mm-hmm. is always going to be floating around the top of yeah. those lists. And natural wine producers love these guys. Big producers love these guys. They're mm-hmm. awesome. So I'll, I'll talk, I'll continue the story um, after listening to some more music to Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. I, expect I expected it to taste thicker than it tastes. It's not as thick as I thought it would be by looking at it. Sometimes you know? that glycerol quality of wine also diminishes with time. So that glycerol, like what kind of can give wine a, th- a thickish mm. appearance okay. or taste, okay. can, yeah, can diminish with time, cool. especially in the barrel slash bottle, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. But what are There's we- so much flavor in there. I love that. And look, look at how long the finish is too. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Friendly good. Hi, Maricose. <laughs> Mercedes. Thinking of you from Minneapolis. <laughs> Delish. Well, now we're going to listen to an actual fade out, which is pretty cool, uh, where there's literally, it just fades to nothing with an offstage choir, which is super cool. So I'm talking, and if you know of classical music, you'll know I'm talking of the piece called The Planets, which is a huge piece of music that the British composer Gustav Holst wrote in about 1912 to 1914. So we're talking World War I here. And there are so many just cool things I would love to say about this piece. But I think it's just safe to say that this piece will make another appearance in Scores of Pores someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today we're just going to focus on Neptune, which is the final movement. When Holst wrote the planets, Pluto hadn't been discovered yet. So that's why it ends with Neptune. Although... There are actually debates about why he ordered the planets the way he ordered them, but it ends with Neptune. So uh, Neptune is interesting. Holst was really fascinated with astrology, and he wasn't—he didn't necessarily practice it in whatever way that means, but he he was interested by it. And so he wrote this piece, the planets. There's seven movements. Astrology uh, has a very geocentric. Outlook, And so there is no Earth because astrology deals with how the heavenly bodies interact with Earth. So it's not heliocentric. It's talking about the sun, right? We're talking about how planets interact with Earth. Therefore, there is no Earth movement. And since there's no Pluto, there's seven movements to the, to the planets. Um, Neptune is very ethereal and mysterious sounding. Uh, there's a piece we talked about many episodes ago when we talked about how composers... Um, make music that sounds like water. We talked about a piece by Claude Debussy called La Mer. And this piece is kind of along those lines. It's very ethereal sounding and kind of washboards of sound. And he scores it for a, a fairly large orchestra. But in this particular movement, in the Neptune movement, there are two three-part women's choirs that are off stage and that start to sing. They don't sing words. They just sing ooze, I think. 
uh, at, at the end, and, and that's how the piece ends. So, so we'll hear a little bit of the beginning of Neptune again to kind of help give you context and establish what the movement sounds like, and then we'll hear how it just fades to nothing at the end, which was a really amazing effect for the audiences. It had never really happened before. So here we go. Here's the beginning of Neptune. I have written down here that the planets was written from like 14 to 16. 14 to 16. And and actually like out of order, like Neptune is written in the middle. Yeah. It wasn't written in the end, which I would think it'd be like that he would maybe work in order, you know, you never know. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry about messing up the dates. 14 to 16. It was written 1914 to 1916. Still in World War (laughs) One. Still, <laughs> yep. still a traumatic time. <laughs> yep. And he did, I mean, he took two years to write it. So he didn't, he wrote it in whatever order he wrote it. And then yeah. he ordered them later. So mm. um, one of the interesting things about the planets that's actually really fun to hear if you are lucky enough to find a recording of, he originally wrote it for, um, I can't remember if it was two pianos or for one piano, four hands. I think he wrote it for two piano. I could be wrong, but he either wrote it for one piano, four hands, so two people sitting side by side at a piano, or he wrote it for two pianos initially. And it's really cool to hear that recording. There's some actually, that's a fun, that'd be a fun episode to do because there are a lot of really famous orchestral pieces that started off as piano works and you would just never know it. And you hear it on piano and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Hmm. You know. So anyway, that's how uh, The Planets was originally uh, written again. Sorry about dates. Nineteen fourteen, nineteen sixteen. Let's listen to Neptune, the beginning. One of my favorite things about this movement is how he rocks back and forth between a couple different minor triads. We've talked about how a, tri- a triad is a chord. It has three notes, triad, hence triad. Uh, and he goes back and forth between E minor and G sharp minor, which is really cool. It's just this neat. I'm just walking through a path in a, in a scary movie right now. <laughs> Neptune is visible, um, and someone's going to jump out of the woods and scare the shit out of me in about 20 seconds. <laughs> There's also quite an extensive part for the celesta in this piece, which celesta is a keyboard instrument that sounds real twinkly. It's just this little tiny mini keyboard. All right, you want to hear the end? Yeah, please. I mean, honestly, on a recording, it's a little, I mean, they could be helping a little, they could be cheating a little by, you know, literally like doing a digital fade yeah. on the audience, but it's it's really cool to hear it live. That's Definitely. really awesome. Yeah. I just think of like planets that do retrogrades, you know, they go across yeah. the, and I just think that's like 
Neptune at the end of its retrograde. And if you, I'm not going to talk about it now because it's way too in depth, but if you look at what Neptune brings to the astrological charts, <laughs> whoa. And so it, when it retrogrades, it's like, <laughs> and this is like, it's, you know, it's just got a few more days left and you can just, just waiting patiently for to just stop doing that. Um, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. It's an amazing piece of music. I look forward to talking more about that piece in the future on Scores and Pours. It's a goodie. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. More wine. More wine. Let's get back to uh, Rafael Lopez Heredia. So at this at this point right now, we have Rafael Lopez Heredia making, you know, running this company for the most part, homogenizing, learning how to homogenize wine, learning how to manage grape harvests. Around this time, the 1860s, 1850s, 1870s, we see this increase in like what we'd consider high society, like people that are recognizing the difference in place, the difference in vintage, starting to say this vintage is better than that vintage. And, you know, wine's commanding even more money, especially after the, the classification of Bordeaux. And this is especially happening in the Nordic countries with money, of course, France, the British, of course, and they are seeking out wines of distinction. So Rafael was like, I imagine he's thinking to himself, well, wait a minute, why why are we selling homogenized, delicious wine when I could sell noble, beautiful wine? And thus starts the endeavor to build out a cellar. He's figuring out how to turn these bulk wines and and make higher quality wines that are like in this Bordeaux style. And I just want to show, I've got a book here that was given to me um, by the owners and it's it was written by Luis G. de Candamo, who has known the family for a while. And there's just, it's a lot of history. It's probably, you know, too much for a lot of, a lot of folks, but I just wanted to show Emily here pictures of the cellar to get an idea of how big these cellars are because they are, um, <gasps> whoa. So underneath, they excavated what would be considered right now 65,000 square feet of cellar space. Um, <laughs> they have 14,000 barrels at present, and granted, this grew over the years, but the main undertaking started in 1877, and the, mm. the you know, where he started to get, like, huge vats to be able to ferment a large quantity of wine Neat. at once, a beautiful press, you know, at yeah. that time. That's so cool. Yep. And so th- this is basically, you know, we have the the railway as well had something to do with it because before then they were transferring a lot of wines on in leather on mm. like horse or donkey, right? Yeah. And that leather would give this like terrible flavor to like tarry flavor to Spanish wines. Okay. And so people would know like, oh, Rioja and a lot of northern Spanish wines has this this flavor. So when Lopez Heredia came out with, you know, when the bodega was finally like edified and and founded and was, there's a whole lot that goes into how it becomes his, but when they started tasting like this, when they didn't have the tar notion and they were, they tasted old, but they, you could just buy them that way. You didn't have to sit and sell them yourself. Um, it really made a name for the winery and for Rioja being known for that style. So nowadays, of course, people are like, I love Rioja. And, you know, they're buying like this $14 Rioja or they're buying a $2,000 over-oaked, big, bold, brr, bombastic 15% alcohol wine. Whatever. It all to me is like, I love Rioja. <laughs> but like, this is what 
when you are going for your sommelier exam or when people that know wine well that are familiar with like what we would consider quote unquote old school Rioja, it is Lopeceria. And there have been some producers that have piggybacked off of that style, like La Rioja Alta, Marques de Riscal, Marques de Cáceres, you know, all these producers are making wines in this vein where they're releasing a tier of wines called Crianza Reserva, Gran Reserva, that are aged successively as we go up the scale longer. Okay. So the more money you have to spend, yeah. the older your wine is going to taste upon release. Mm-hmm. And so this, for example, this is their Bosconia that I mentioned. Um, they aged this for about five years in all American oak. And the reason that they chose American oak was, first of all, why are we going to buy things from France? Like, why support the French if you're Spanish? Okay. Um, but also... <laughs> That's healthy. <laughs> also, though, American oak gives a certain flavor, and it oxidizes a little bit. It breathes more. So you'll have a oxidation faster than you will with French oak. It's racked twice a year, which means they move it from one barrel to another to help get rid of some sediment. But that also adds air. That's part of the aging process, right? So this is, in, in a typical world, when you have to know this for minutiae, for, for wine information, you see a reserva on the back of a bottle. And in the laws of Rioja in Spanish wine, it's one year in the barrel and two years in the bottle, and then people can release it okay. with, with a date on it. Lopez Heredia says, well, okay, our reserva is going to be aged five years. And then in this case, you know, you've got a further however many years until it gets to its release in 2019, which was 2007 is the current release of Bosconia. And their their Crianza, which always is like one of the younger wines, it's still got a little oak, but, you know, not, not that much oak. Their current release of Cubillo is like 2010 for their, you know, wow. little young Crianza. They do the same with, um, which is really awesome, with white wines. Oh, so neat. their current release of Gran Reserva White is like... 2000, I want to say it's 2003 or four or something like that, but they're like, so just to spin that for me, will you show me the label? Okay. So it says 2007. Mm -hmm. So it was aged five years before that? Nope. So 2007 was the year that the wines or the grapes were harvested. Okay. Okay. Then they age it. Then they sell it five years later. Yep. Okay. Um, Well, they age it for five years. And so yeah, that brings yeah. us to 12 right. and then right. seven more years in bottle yep. before they release it. What's interesting is, you know, when, when I talked to the owners years ago, the first time I ever met them, I think we, they talked about how, you know, after so long in barrel and bottle, you kind of get this homogenization of, of taste, meaning okay. like they want you as a fan of Lopeceria to always be able to come and buy Bosconia. And even though there's a different vintage, it's always pretty similar, right? It's the same. Like you're always going to be like, oh, I love Bosconia Reserva. You're not going to be surprised by like one that's really watery from a rainy vintage or whatever. So are they like adding stuff to it then or? No, but what's crazy is, well, no, it's just like over the years, you know, over the years when something has aged so long, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, you know, when you are so long with someone and you just become that person or something. I don't know. I think that when you taste enough Bosconia Reserva, you can really taste the difference between like 2007 and 2003 and, to, mm-hmm. you know, a riper vintage like 2003. So they're fun wines that even though you don't need to sell them, it's really 
worth cellaring. I just opened up, I've got a, a 85 in my cellar, Grand Reserva Tondonia, and just opened it up a few weeks ago because it was Thursday and I felt like it. And I was like, God, this wine has so much life left. Like they, you can drink them, of course, when you buy them because that's what, mm-hmm. how they're de- designed yeah. uh, for. But God, you age them and it's just like, crazy the the kind of notion they smell like i don't know my one of my sommelier professors back in the day was like he's from canada he's like i always when i drink lopathidity i always smells like ketchup chips old rioja tastes like ketchup chips and i was like <laughs> weird what but i guess when you smell it you kind of get this like tomatoey yeah dilly yeah and now it smells i i actually adore the smell a little more now that we've been you know it's gotten some air mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but knowing kind of the history and just Knowing that on this show, we've had a couple old wines before. Yeah. We've had a 2005 Barolo, and we've had some kind of things like that, but we've had some older port. But what do you what do you think about, about this? Just knowing we don't have a lot of, like, super tertiary wines on the show. Yeah, that's what I think I think of it, is that it's really interesting to smell it and not smell all those fresh smells, but it also tastes delicious. And it's, it's not that it smells bad at all. It's just so different than what, what we often have, you know? Do you find, if I were to say like food wine, like this is a food wine, like it wants, Mm. it wants a stew or it wants something rich. It wants burgers. It wants pizza, whatever. But like to sit and sip Boschconi on its own definitely could be done, but Mm -hmm. I would prefer it with. Yeah, I bet I could pull that off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but no, I can see also how mm, there's that tannin on the teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. They have three million. I just looked at it. I wrote this down. They have three million liters at their disposal Story. to be blending and wow. with their, you know. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. They have a wine called Boschconia and they have a wine called Tondonia that are their kind of their, their two, two vineyards that are the yeah. most well known. And the winemaker and, and owner, separate sisters, um, they're like, you always have a favorite. You're always like a Bosconia or a Tondonia person. You're never <laughs> like both. And they bottle them in different bottles. So Bosconia is always in a burgundy bottle, um, kind of a little more of a squat. And then the Tondonia is in like a Bordeaux bottle. So I don't know more, what that means. more slender, the more okay. slender type of bottle. Okay. And I don't know. I, I'm hard pressed to choose. I think it depends on the vintage <laughs> and like what the purpose would be. But um, I always love love what drinking the wines. Yeah. Yeah. What's it's delicious? What are we going to drink to accompany this last sip well, of Boschconia? Let's tuba because yes, the tuba. The tuba is fascinating, but the tuba was not around for a really, really long time. It, it's. Uh, really one of the newer additions to the orchestra and um, kind of like the saxophone was. I mean, the saxophone was invented like five years after the tuba. So that's pretty fascinating. Uh, Tuba, the patent was granted to a couple of fellas in 1835 to make the tuba. There was an instrument called the ophiclide, and you do still see ophiclide around in places. The hell is an ophiclide? Ophiclide it means uh, Besides the fact serpent that gonna... with keys, basically. Oh. So an ophiclide kind of does look like a saxophone in a way because it has keys like that. Maybe I've seen one and just don't, didn't know what it was. It's just a big, it's like a big tube bent in half with with keys that open when you press them. So on an ophiclide, the keys are usually closed until you press, press mm. and then it... Open but it's up. played with a mouthpiece, like a trombone mouthpiece, basically... Um, not 
not quite as low or big as a tuba for sure. Sounds like I should name my kitty that. <laughs> I know I've thrown up out a couple kitty names, yeah. but Offa like... Clyde is a good one because you could just call him Clyde, although it's not spelled the same. Offa Clyde is O P H I Offa C L E I D E Offa Clyde. God, the vets would have a heyday with that. <laughs> to be like, yeah, just spell it out for them. I'm sure you wouldn't be the only one to have a weird name for your pet. But so, yeah, that's kind of the deal with the tuba, 1835. And so, naturally, it just took a while for it to become a part of the orchestra. And it was then in, in 1954 that British composer Rafe von Williams wrote his concerto for tuba, and he wrote it for the principal tuba player for the London Symphony Orchestra in 1954. So, yeah, let's uh, let's listen let's to a little it. bit of Vaughn Williams. I thought it was cute that he's got a IRV 92, like he's got a he's got an opus number or like a little own his own little catalog, because you know I think his name people yeah. know him, but yeah. how many people know Mozart? Right. Way more than they know. Right. Von Williams. Yeah. yeah, Von Williams is wonderful. And again, just like the planets, we'll we'll talk about Von Williams in future. Well, we already have. We've talked about his oboe concerto in the past, but mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about more Von Williams definitely because he he ha- uh, had a really interesting approach to composition and kind of had phases in his life where you know early Von Williams doesn't sound like late Von Williams, which is kind of neat. So, yeah. I listened to the version um, that Andre Previn. Oh, nice. Conducted. It was great. I bet. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yes. That's so good. I think we should cheers while we're listening to this because this yes. is so good. To tubas. Tubas. To tubas. <laughs> Yesterday, as I was listening to this, all I was doing was, I was like... (laughs) Dude, tuba is no joke. It is hard to play. Yeah. I think, I mean... You know, as a as a music major, if you're an education major, which I was as an undergrad, you learn all the instruments. You take skills classes to learn at least the very basics on how to make a sound mm-hmm. and maybe some minor repair issues or something along those lines to just kind of yeah. get a feel for all the instruments. And man, tuba is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's just so much air. Just so all the way air. around. Like the just, embouchure, mm-hmm. you just gotta lug that thing around. Yeah. You know, you're always the dork, like the biggest <laughs> of the band dorks, you know? You can like, always pick out a tuba player for sure. <laughs> there are two, I think of like two very stereotypical types of people who play tuba, and I'm just gonna keep that to myself, but it's pretty funny to me. Every video I see of a tuba player, I'm like, oh, you're that one. <laughs> but yeah, there Actually, I watched a really um, fun video they, uh, on YouTube about um, the tubist in the Utah Symphony Orchestra, and he talks about the kinds of tubas he owns because there are tubas in different keys, like there are mm-hmm. trumpets in different keys, and so he was talking about what he owns and, and that the tuba he was holding, he owns an exact same copy, the same same tuba, 
but he keeps it at home so he doesn't have to carry it back and forth. I mean, it's like, save your back, man. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. I love this concert. And this is the, this is the first movement, right? This is the first movement. And so yeah. there are three total. Should we listen to the, yep. just a little And just a reminder, because I didn't do a very good job of this last week, a concerto, again, just to remind you, a concerto means there's a soloist with an orchestra. And so we're listening to this tuba play with... Uh, well, with the London Symphony Orchestra. And uh, concertos usually have three movements. So unlike a symphony that usually has four, but there are obviously exceptions to all those rules. So which movement did you say you wanted the second one? Or Should the we third listen one? to just like a quick 30 seconds of each? And just because, sure. I mean, Romanza, and we listen to the prelude, which is the first, the Romanza is the second movement. And it's just, it's a goodie. Wasn't it the case where he, when he wrote this and it was premiered, at first people were like, come on, really? Yeah. But then it became one of the works that he was actually quite yeah. known for. Yeah, because okay. nobody had written a tuba concerto and everybody's like, oh, whatever. But Yeah, go, go be that person. Yeah, but it's, I think tuba players are pretty glad he did. Especially to have a concerto written by Ray Fon Williams, that's huge. I mean, Ray Fon Williams definitely... As you were saying with top five uh, Spanish wine producers, Von Williams is going to be top five English composers. Oh, so to have cool. a tuba concerto by him, is that's really special. Yeah, it's because it's beautiful. He was a beautiful writer. Some of the third? Number three, yeah, the finale. It's a rondo. Someday we'll talk about what a rondo is. Yes. Well, from firsts in classical music like the tuba concerto to mm -hmm. firsts in wine, making wine aged and noble at your disposal when you buy it. Amazing. Lopathidia, here to firsts. To firsts. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. It's wine ain't free, people. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. <laughs>